This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. If you're a loser, tune in and you'll be a winner. It's the Moranalytics Podcast. Talking Buffalo sports, Yankees, WWE, 80s music, and pop culture. And now, here's your host, Patrick Moran. All right, podcast fans, what's going on? Hope all is well. Welcome to episode number 102 of the Moranalytics podcast. Today is... Friday, March 15th, 2019, March 15th, the Ides of March, baby. Thank you, as always, for listening and downloading. If you haven't subscribed yet, please go ahead and do so. Also, take two minutes, please, to rate and review this show. I can't tell you enough. It really helps the show tremendously, helps me grow this podcast. So if you could take a minute to do that, I'd really appreciate it. Coming up on the show today, I have from the NFL Draft Network and Locked On Bills podcast, Joe Marino is going to be my guest. You want to talk about good timing. It's the perfect time to have Joe on the show. So much going on with the Buffalo Bills and throughout the NFL with free agency starting this week. I mean, literally, they probably have added about a fifth of their 2019 active roster just this week alone in free agency. Probably still more guys to come. We're going to catch up to all of the signings. Joe is going to break down every player, their contract, what it means to the Bills, how he pictures them in their role here. We'll talk about that. We're going to go around the NFL, talk about some of the craziness going on, not just a free agency, but also trades. I mean, it's just crazy. Trades in the NFL used to never, ever happen. Now they happen Literally all the time. You remember when the Bills traded for Jerry Hughes a handful of years ago from the Colts? That was rare. Like, that barely happened. At least at that time. Now, shit, that's nothing. Adele Beckham, traded. Antonio Brown, traded. D. Ford, traded. Joe Flacco, traded. All these big-name stars getting dealt. Not even free agency, trades. Crazy time in the NFL, but it does make for a much more exciting offseason because you never know. It used to be a guy would be coming up on his contract and then you would spend that offseason wondering, is he going to stay? Is he going to leave? That's not the case anymore, man. Almost anyone on any team is now fair game in the NFL for the right offer anyway. So it makes for a much more exciting offseason. We're going to hit on all that stuff. Joe is so good at that kind of stuff. And we're also going to talk about the draft because now that the Bills have went out, they've addressed wide receiver, they've addressed the offensive line, they've addressed tight end. There's a lot of possibilities for the draft now. It feels to me 
Like they can go out and get the best player. Doesn't automatically have to be an offensive tackle. Doesn't have to be a wide receiver. In fact, it's probably not going to be a wide receiver. Lots of positions that they can go. Lots of places they can go. We're going to hit on some of those. Great conversation with Joe. Also coming up on the show, I play a movie review of Captain Marvel. It's a non-spoiler version of Captain Marvel. Done by Sean Chandler, YouTube content creator. Was on the show a couple weeks ago. Great guy. Really good at at, uh, reviewing movies. So he's on. Got a packed show for you today. Actually, it was going to be even more packed because originally I was going to have someone on to talk Buffalo Sabres as well. But I'm not going to bother doing that. In fact, you know what? You want your Buffalo Sabres analysis? I got it for you right now. Help me, Jesus! Help me, Jewish God! Help me, Allah! Ah! Help me, Tom Cruise! No Sabres talk, but plenty of Buffalo Bills and NFL talk. So here's my interview with Joe Marino of the Draft Network, followed by a movie review of Captain Marvel by my buddy Sean Chandler. Okay, my guest today is a senior draft analyst at the Draft Network and also is the host of the Locked on Bills podcast, a show I really like listening to. He's a busy dude, and this is his busiest time of the year. I'm talking about Joe Marino. What's going on, Joe? How you doing? Hey, Patrick. I'm doing well. Uh, excited to be on the podcast with you. And uh, we we had to start a little later than than we expected here with the uh, the Bills and their press conferences today. So thanks for being flexible. Oh, no problem at all. Glad to have you on the show. We are taping this late on Thursday. People will be hearing this Friday morning. I'm just, I'm a big fan of the work you do. You're really one of those guys out there that just grinds it out there, banging out solid content regularly. More than most do, man. So re- props to you on that before we get started with anything else. I, thank you. Uh, I, certainly, it's a labor of love, and it's it's it doesn't feel like work every day when I get to watch football and write about it and talk about the Bills, and it's it's so much fun. I worked really hard to get to this point, and uh, I'm, I'm going to continue to fight for my voice you know, out there, and so I, I appreciate you recognizing that. Now we got one thing in common here. We're both Western New York guys. You were born in Grand Island before moving to Charlotte. I got to ask you before we get, and then we'll get going with the podcast, but these are kind of things that interest me because again, I am a Buffalo guy who now lives in Florida. You're from Western New York. How did you end up in Carolina? Well, I, I moved from Grand Island to Charlotte, North Carolina when I was 11 years old with my family. So I didn't have much of a choice, right? My father, uh, he did construction work and uh, some other friends of his kind of moved down with a church actually. And so my family went with him. And so it's been a great move for us. Um, You know, we've established roots here in the Carolinas and and certainly love being here. I have plenty of family still back in Buffalo and, and certainly love to visit, but um, really I didn't have a choice in the matter. And now I've lived in Charlotte for, uh, you know, over 20 years. Huh. So did you remain a Buffalo fan when you were 11 year old kid? Because you were young when you moved to Carolina, did you stay a bills fan? Did you become fans of other teams? How did that work out for you? What, what's funny is the, the year that we moved here was the very first season that the Carolina Panthers had a team, right? Oh, wow. So it was, it was an interesting time. Um, and if you recall, there was a lot of Buffalo pair, like they brought in like Pete Metzlars and Frank Reich right, and Bill yeah. Polian. Yep. So there's a lot of those things that happen. We're like, oh yeah, this would be really cool. We even got some like Panther starters jackets. 
But <laughs> you couldn't, we couldn't, we couldn't do it. We couldn't commit to it. That's like it was, ni- that was around like ninety five or something around yeah, that time, right? Yeah, right in there. Ninety six was their first season. So it, we tried to. It was never going to be to not have the Bills first and foremost, but tried to expand the interest to the Panthers. And you just, it's tough, man, especially when you think about how passionate Buffalo Bills fans are and how big a piece of the community is. I mean, it is literally knitted into the fabric of the community in Western New York. And here, even today, they struggle so hard to be a true football town. It's a lot of a wine and cheese crowd. I mean, and the challenge is Charlotte's a place where people from all over the country have moved. There's not a lot of people in Charlotte that are from Charlotte. And so all these people, they liked another team at, you know, before the Panthers existed. And so there's not that, that lineage of, Hey, your grandfather, your dad, and now you are a bills fan. It's just part of your family. Like that hasn't happened. The real Panthers fans, they're just now turning, I don't know, 25, 30 years old. And so it's, it's just very different. And when you're used to a certain level of passion and enthusiasm, around your team and you don't get it, you don't gravitate towards it very quickly. And so, yeah, never, never really gravitated away from the bills, tried uh, right. to, to be interested in the Panthers, but no, the bills were always number one and, and that'll never change. I'll tell you that it's very similar where I am with Tampa Bay. I live in Bradenton. I'm about maybe 40 minutes outside of Tampa, South of Tampa. And it's kind of the same deal. Everyone who lives down here in Florida, like me, for an example, nobody's actually from Florida. Everybody's from somewhere else. <laughs> Everyone has another team. As it turns out, Damone Harris played for UB, and he's a very close family friend. And as luck had it, he ended up on the practice squad with uh, Tampa Bay this year. So my wife and my son and I went to a Tampa Bay game because that's the only reason I would go to a Tampa Bay game was to see him. He got us tickets and everything. And I go into the stadium, and I'm like, oh, my God. A third of the stadium are Saints fans because they were playing the Saints that day. But then you got guys walking around with Eagle jerseys, Steelers, Patriots, <laughs> all these teams. I'm like, man, if you go to Buffalo, that, that ain't happening. You might have a small little minority of road fans at a Bills game, but 99% of the people are going to have Bills gear on. I go to Tampa. It's like, yeah, it's just like a, it's like an NFL city as opposed to one franchise. I'm, I, I kind of feel like that's what you're talking about, too, when it comes to Carolina. Maybe not quite as much now, but to a certain extent anyway. You know, what's interesting about Carolina, specifically the Charlotte area, is there a, a lot of Buffalo transplants. Right. And so when the when the Bills come to town, we're talking 60-40. You know, we're really kind of pushing that half half full in terms of Bank of America Stadium being red, white, and blue. And you're starting to see it more and more. I think you're going to see the Bills-Panthers be a thing just about every year in preseason. Uh, it's rumored to be on the docket for this year. And uh, it makes a lot of sense because for both sides, you know, just – you're going you're gonna to draw a lot more interest uh, playing a team where there's that local connection more so than if, if the Bills were to play the Seahawks or something like that. So I think Bills-Panthers is a little bit coming to new Bills-Lions, if you remember that oh, from yeah. the preseason in, in the past there. Yeah, definitely for sure. Let's talk about your podcast, okay? Locked on Bills. You took over that podcast early January, and I looked it up, man. You have pounded out 44 episodes in only about two and a half months. You do three or four a week at least. Do you have a set schedule or do for the most part, do you record when you feel like you have something to say? Well, so I have a contract that says I have to do a certain amount of podcasts per week. Um, right now in the off season, I'm only required to do three or four. Only? Uh, but I'm, yeah. <laughs> most we, I mean, I'm pretty much delivering four most of the time five. And wow. so, um, you know, it's, it's, uh, one of those things where it's just part of my day. It's part of, part of my life is, 
following the Buffalo Bills, trying to find slants to talk about. And, you know, I'm obviously thinking way, way down the line. It's never like, oh, man, I got to do this podcast. What am I going to talk about? It's just part of my thought process all day long, developing show strategies and thinking down the line different things I can talk about. And so, you know, it's, it's going to be my first year doing the Lockdown Bills podcast, a daily podcast on the Bills um, so I don't know, you know, I don't know what the challenges are going to look like in, in June or, <laughs> or early July, right. you know, so, I mean, a lot of guests, a lot of different ideas that I have to continue the discussion. But, you know, when I saw the opportunity to have an opportunity to talk about the bills every single day for 25 or 30 minutes and, uh, really expand the portfolio of what I do, it was something that I really wanted, wanted to jump on. I mean, my, my start in, in sports media was writing about the bills. And so I kind of have drifted towards my full-time job is, is covering the NFL draft. And so I always have that part of me that wants to have that bills piece, you know, my, my toe in the water with bills analysis. And, you know, it, it's a lot easier to spend a half an hour talking a day. Now there's a lot of show prep and time that goes into that, but in terms of being able to have a voice in the Buffalo bills media uh, realm was something that I wanted to do. And I, I found a really good opportunity to do that with the lockdown podcast network covering the bills. Now we're going to talk Buffalo Bills, free agency, NFL, the draft, all that fun stuff in just a couple of minutes. Before that, though, when I have somebody on the show who's involved in podcasting, I like to ask them a couple of questions about their specific podcast. And in your case, what is your process with the podcast? So one o'clock is podcast time. So one o'clock comes around and I, I have another daily podcast, the Draft Dudes podcast with Kyle Krabs that we uh, also do daily. Um, and that's through the draft network. And so at one o'clock, Kyle and I have a daily appointment where we record that podcast. And so immediately following that podcast, my goal is to then record locked on bills and then publish it right for a midnight release so that every single day there's that consistency that people know they can wake up Monday through Friday. And that podcast is going to be ready for them right. to listen to at their disposal whenever they want. There's no variance with the times. Now it's been really challenging over these couple of months here to start because I was in Tampa for, for the shrine game for a week. Then I was in, uh, uh, mobile Alabama for the senior bowl for a week. And then I was at the, the, the scouting combine for a week. And so you, you just to keep that rhythm was just about impossible during those times when I was away. And so that's where it got tricky. But when I'm at home at the office, you know, it's, it's an appointment thing for me now with the free agency and stuff like that. Lately, it's been challenging because that news goes all day. And so I'm sitting there like, all right, there's gotta be a cutoff time where I've got to, I've got to stop. I've got to collect what I have record this podcast and just, Hey, tell people what time it is. But, um, so, you know, as much as I want to be consistent with it, some, the ebbs and flows of what's happening right now kind of dictates that. And so I want to be as relevant as possible. I don't want people to have to wait, you know, for my, my takes on what happened the day before. So it's, it's a balancing thing. And, and so I, you know, once these more time sensitive stuff gets behind us, I, I think I'll be able to be even more consistent with my personal rhythm, which I'm pretty, which I'm pretty excited about. Without being too specific. And then we're going to get into our football portion of this interview, but without being too specific, because I know there's going to be some people out there who don't really care about this kind of stuff, but there are plenty of people who do. So for them, when you put your podcast together, what kind of gear are you using? What kind of stuff do you use to do your podcast? Um, so I have a blue Yeti microphone, USB mm -hmm. microphone that, uh, is on a boom stand that I put right in my face. 
<laughs> I mean, I, this thing, this thing's on my nose. I, I smell that has like a, what is this thing? Like a windscreen in front of it. Yeah. I smelled that recently. And I realized I gotta, I gotta start replacing this thing <laughs> with some regularity, man. That's got some funk to it. But, uh, so, you know, I like it right there. It kind of gives me, I don't know, for some reason it helps me stay engaged more. And, and it really, you know, it, when I'm in studio doing radio, I, I think that's something that I really drew from in-studio radio work is when that's right there and I have the good headphones on and I can hear myself in the in, in my ears and I, I realize that, hey, you know, that I'm delivering, trying to deliver audio content that's engaging where people can feel my energy and enthusiasm and seeing seeing really good radio people in studio, you, you don't appreciate what goes into it until you're sitting there next to those guys, those great radio right. hosts like Chris McLean here in Charlotte. That dude is delivering every single sentence with hand gestures, and he's out, He's at the edge of his seat, and he's really speaking with his full body and putting that energy and enthusiasm in. And so I said all that to say that I like having having the boom – the boom and the mic right in my, right in my face with the windscreen, Me high too. quality headphones. And then I just, I record actually right into garage band, download, you know, put the bells and whistles on it, download it as a file and upload it into Panal Panoply, I guess is what it's called is the, uh, as the, as the service. And mm -hmm. then it just shoots it to all the mediums and, uh, have that scheduled for every, every day at midnight. I'm going to put a link in the show notes to the lockdown bills podcast. Like I said, really good podcast props to you, for producing it and making it sound so professional because I guess my big beef with podcasting is everyone has one because everyone wants to have something to say and that's fine. I've heard a lot of podcasts where the content itself is pretty good, but it sounds like shit. You hear chairs creaking in the background, all kinds of noise, the microphones that they even have one, they're awful. You know what I mean? There's nothing worse than using your time to put on a podcast and you turn it on, and regardless of how the content is, the audio quality is just complete total shit. You know what I mean? Yeah, I, you know, I, I didn't, I wasn't at this point for. I've been doing podcasting for, I guess, four years now, and so early on, you know, I had like a, a Microsoft headset that was really designed for like chatting and stuff, and you know, I, I started to realize that more and more of the comments and feedback were, hey, you know, like production's not that good, and so if you wanted to take this seriously, be a professional about it, make this my career. I needed to invest in some gear and make sure that I was delivering the audio audio quality that people weren't going to gripe about. And so, uh, you know, made that investment here. And, uh, I think that's really helped me turn the corner and, and it helps me. I mean, it's like wearing a tie, right? Like you, you, when you, when you're a business guy, you want to wear that, that nice stuff, right. To get sure. a nice watch on and stuff and, 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 you know, press shirts and stuff like that. It changes your approach to the, the opportunity. And I think that you deliver a better podcast for that. And so look, I, I mean, I I'm growing, I self, I self scout my, my, I self scout my podcast to try to pick up on tendency stuff that rubs me the wrong way that like, Hey, you got to clean that up. Your delivery needs to be better here. You do, you make these weird noises. And I, and I still, I fight myself on that type of stuff every single day, yeah. but you know, you just try to be a professional about it and, and, you know, like honing on your craft, just like a receiver's learning to run routes and catch a football. I mean, you have to take this seriously. And, um, that's something I've tried to do here recently. Oh, you've done it. Well, let's get to the fun stuff. Now I want to talk about the bills, but before I talk about these new signings at the press conference today, we heard a lot of players talking about Josh Allen reaching out to them after they signed. It's kind of becoming apparent. I mean, the verdict is still out. If this kid is going to become a true quote unquote franchise quarterback in terms of excelling on the field, but he is becoming a franchise quarterback and the leader of this team reaching out to these new guys. You could just see it and sense it that 
Josh Allen is becoming a real leader on this team going into his second season. Would you agree with that? Yeah, there, there's no question about it. I think you saw that even last year, you know, in his involvement as the starting quarterback and how, you know, a guy like LaShawn McCoy was able to rally around him and really believe in him. And I think that mattered right away for him to get confidence as a leader. This is a guy, you know, I mean, like, excuse what I'm going to say here, but this is a guy who gives a shit. Right. Right. So like you think about his entire and this is something I'll be honest with you. When I was scouting Josh Allen, this is something I did not consider enough. And I'll take I'll take that. This is a guy who didn't get the opportunities he wanted out of high school. He fought his way up to get his opportunity at Wyoming. He wrote a letter to every single position coach and and uh, coordinator. And, and at the FBS level, he got two offers right from some directional Washington school in Wyoming. He takes the Wyoming gig and he he works his ass off to become a top 10 draft pick. And that type of mentality, that work ethic, I mean, you hear Sean McDermott and Brandon Bean talk all the time about being wired the the right way and having the right DNA and fitting the culture and being, you know, being a pro and all that type of stuff. Like that stuff really mattered with Josh Allen. And I think it helped him step in, even though there was a lot of skeptics with Josh Allen and even, even from players on other teams. We saw it with Jamal Adams and, and uh, Jalen Ramsey and different players throughout the league that had nothing to do with Josh Allen, but wanted to criticize him right. for him to overcome all that, win the locker room. And now heading into year two to be this forefront guy that's making these phone calls and being intentional about welcoming his new teammates to the organization and, and scheduling time to, to work together in the offseason and getting to know players that's something that Josh Allen has embraced. And that really starts with what you hear from Brandon Bean and Sean McDermott about having an organization where everybody cares about each other. And the things that we, we see happen in training camp about they, the players know each other as people and they get up and they preach this love type stuff, not, not things you normally hear from a locker room. Right. And so I think all of that really is something that Josh Allen has embraced. It's the vision that McDermott and Bean have for this. And you love to see this right now coming off of these press conferences, Josh Allen being mentioned so many times that he was the first person that they heard from from the organization and how excited they were to work with Josh Allen. It's very encouraging. No, he's going to have Mitch Morse in front of him at center. I don't know if that's a surprise. I mean, the, the buzz was that they were going to be in on Matt Paradis. Those were the two top centers. No question about that. Turns out that Morse got the much better deal. Was, there was a little bit of a sense before, I think, free agency when Spencer Long signed that, uh, you know, here comes another guy. He's just another guy that's going to probably end, be end up playing center, kind of like Bodine did last year. Just felt like another guy, not to disrespect Spencer Long in any way. But are you a little bit surprised that they went out and spent the money to get Mitch Morse? Or was this something that you anticipated happening? Because that's a big signing. Yeah, they they made Mitch Morse the highest paid center in NFL history. So, yeah, yeah. Um, I think. One thing that I've I've learned in, in trying to get in the heads of general managers and trying to be predictive, particularly on the draft side of thing, which kind of translates over to the you know roster construction and understanding what I think teams will do, is you look at people that have jobs like Brandon Bean, like Sean McDermott, and what is the reason they have those positions and what was true about where they came from. And a lot of in a lot of instances, they're gonna want to replicate a lot of those things. And you can draw parallels, I mean tons of parallels to between Carolina and Buffalo and similarities. But one thing that's true about Carolina is they had Ryan Khalil as their center, who's a long-term fixture, the glue of that unit, and a very important centerpiece. And then when he came 
to Buffalo, the first thing he did, you know, the real, the first extension he handed out was to Eric Wood. And mm-hmm. so you knew you, if you connect those dots, you knew that this was going to be a very important position for Brandon Bean. And so all along, I, I did think Paradis and Morse would be the two targets that they'd go after. One thing I probably could have done a better job that would have led me to believe Mitch Morse was the guy is thinking about Andy Reid and his connections with Sean McDermott and and really valuing. You know, I, I know that they 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 vet these players out very thoroughly. They talk to people, and I should have considered that more. I didn't. Because uh, I was thinking it was going to be Paradis, but obviously Morse was the guy they want, especially when you consider the deal that Paradis got three years, twenty-seven for Carolina, and Morse Morse gets four years, forty-four from Buffalo. So this is the guy they wanted, and uh, you listen to him at, at the podium today, you can just tell that he's uh, he's going to fit in this culture. He's going to be the type of person that they want, and, and certainly, you know, they they made a sizable commitment to him, and that's because he fits not only uh, what will happen on the football field and give them a high caliber center but also embrace the the philosophies that are so important in the direction of this football team that, you know, being in McDermott want to build it. Yeah. You get a sense that he's going to be a guy who's going to be around for a while. I mean, we see four and five year contracts get handed out all the time. doesn't really mean much. Very often two, three years max teams are fighting a way to get out of the deal, but given his age and his talent and the need, and like you said, the importance of the center position, he's definitely a guy I can see your being for at least all four years and, and maybe even beyond that. Definitely the anchor. He's instantly the anchor of the offensive line right now. It's interesting you say that. I'm not sure we know anything in terms of who's playing where other than Morse is playing center. Yeah. Literally, the the other four spots to me, it, I mean, we know the names, but I don't know what spot they're going to be in. Mitch Morse is your starting center. He's the anchor. He's the dude up front that this unit is built around. Let's talk about that because you bring up an outstanding point. John Feliciano, they signed to give him a two-year deal. Is, is, is he a guard? He could play center. Is he going to do what uh, Ryan Groy couldn't do for them? Is he Vlad Dacos? You got him, and then you got Ty Inseki, which I don't think anyone really – all the talk in Buffalo was about a guy over there with you in Carolina, Darrell Williams. That's all I've heard for weeks and weeks <laughs> and weeks that the Bills were in on him. I got it. I bought into it, too. I would have liked to have had him. I was really surprised. My first thought is, really? They just signed a 33-year-old backup? But as I've educated myself on him and did a lot of reading and stuff, he's one of those gap guys. You know what I mean? He's not going to be a long-term guy in Buffalo. But yeah, he can play left tackle, right tackle. Does he play guard? Is Deion Dawkins going to stay at left tackle? Is he moving to the right? Are they going to slip him inside? We'll talk about the draft shortly because I certainly don't think that taking an offensive tackle is off the board by any means because of the guys they signed on this line whatsoever. But yeah, it's like... Nobody knows who's playing where except for Mitch Morris and Brandon Bean. I mean, obviously, for obvious reasons, and March isn't going to tell you shit. He ain't saying nothing today about that. Yeah, I mean, what was the buzzword at the pressers today? Compete. Guys are going to have an opportunity right. to compete. So Feliciano, I mean, he the good thing about him is he does give you position flex. He can play guard or center. Uh, and you certainly love that Bobby Johnson, the Bills' current offensive line coach, was with him for three years in Oakland. And so they know what type of person he is. And, you know, Feliciano, one thing that you, you notice is that he never was a starter, right? But that's because he's behind three pro bowlers and Rodney Hudson, Gabe Jackson, and Kalichi Osemele with the Raiders. There's not a path for him to get on the field, but when he got on the field, the flashes were there. And he's he gives them an edge, a nastiness about him. He's a physical player a guy that wants to put dudes on their back. And I think that was kind of missing last year. When you when you lose Cordy Glenn, Eric Wood, Richie Incognito, literally in the span of a few weeks, 
and you really don't do much to replace them, you you, you kind of lose those guys, those tone setters up front. And so I don't know if Feliciano is going to win one of these starting guard jobs or if he's going to be a utility blocker, that six offensive lineman at times. I think he'll have a role in either, you know, either one of those two things I just mentioned. But there's no way you just go into the season and say, Wyatt Teller, you're the left guard. That's a fifth-round pick from last year who played well last year, but you don't just put him in. Just like with Levi Wallace, an undrafted guy who played really well down the stretch. You don't just hand him that job. I liken this to the Matt Milano situation with Ramon Humber last year. Matt Milano was always going to be the starting linebacker for the Bills last year. It was never going to be Ramon Humber. But Ramon Humber, what he did was he was that veteran behind him to push him, to make sure he was focused and locked in. And you even remember times throughout training camp, preseason, even OTAs, those types of things where there was this rotation. And and every once in a while – Quote, unquote, Milano was benched for Humber. And everyone was like, oh, what are we doing? We're wasting reps. It's got to be Milano. Humber stinks. No, that stuff's intentional. And what you do is you've created this environment of competition where everyone has to be their best. And the Bills actually have a deep roster for the first time in a long time. And and it's going to breed the best in every single player. So kind of a roundabout way to get back to Feliciano here. I think he'll have a chance to compete at guard. And I think there's legitimately four or five names that could fill those two spots. He'll be in the mix. Inseki's interesting, very similar situation where he had a long journey to the NFL. I mean, arena football, low arena football, CFL. I mean, he was it took him into like 2015 to be really in the NFL. So he's older, but he's new to the NFL. And at Washington, he's playing behind Trent Williams, who's one of the most elite offensive linemen in the game. He's not going to beat him out. And then Morgan Moses, who they really like at right tackle. They've extended him to a big contract as well. And so where's the course to playing? Well, he played a lot in reserve duty and played really well. And you kind of look at those glimpses and say, wow, if this guy was given a chance to groom himself and and play one spot and be a starter, that there's something here. The challenge for me, this is where I I get hung up a little bit, is Inseki's best games have been at left tackle, and he's actually struggled when he's played right tackle. Mm -hmm. Now, some of that, he was hurt in, in a few of those games. He's played four different games at right tackle. We know that Deion Dawkins is the same type of thing where he's he's okay at left tackle. You know, I think he's going to be a fine player. But when he played on the right side in preseason and stuff, man, like he was just funky. All of his technique was off. He really wasn't natural being able to switch back and forth. And so the task ahead for Bobby Johnson and Brian Dable is figure out which four guys around Mitch Morse and what spots they fit in. And, and get the best five out there. That makes sense. And so it, it's a good thing, but there are some question marks right now that I think they're okay to have question marks here in March, but eventually they're going to have to gel into spots and really kind of get a clear picture as to who the front five are and uh, see how it all gels together. But you feel good about that with a guy like Mitch Morse in the middle to kind of tie it all together. Yeah, you said it perfect because like when Spencer Long signed immediately, knee-jerk reaction, and again, including me, I was like, oh, there it is. There's a center. I feel like some people might have felt the same way. You hear the name Ty Inseki, you know, he signs with the Bills. Two years, he gets $7.5 guaranteed or 7.7 guaranteed. You're like, pencil him in, there's your starting right tackle. Not the case whatsoever. No, no. And and like you, I think you've mentioned this already here, is that you should not eliminate the Bills going with an offensive lineman at number nine or in the second round. I mean, there's there's a legitimate spot for them, right? I mean, some of these players that we're talking about, when you look at this this Bills offensive line group, they're not all going to make the team. I mean, right now, Bodine and Ducasse, those guys got to feel like they're on the bubble. Ike Boker, a guy that the Bills liked, and they tried to mix him in a little bit last year, he's on the bubble. Mm-hmm. So if the Bills carry nine offensive linemen, they've carried as much as 10 last season on the 53. 
I don't think you you eliminate offensive line, especially because Inseki's on a two year deal and he's older. And you know, it's it's it can remain flexible at a position that's really important in a vertical passing game with a young quarterback. You need the front five to be solid. Let's talk about Frank Gore for a minute because when it comes to the offensive line. We knew that it needed to be revamped. We didn't know who they were going to sign, but we knew they were going to sign guys, and they did. If you count Spencer Long, they've already added four guys now to the offensive line. They addressed the tight end position, which we expected. They addressed the wide receiver position with two guys, which I think we expected. I don't know if we expected two guys, but we expected them to at least touch on it in free agency. Not sure that anyone expected them to sign a running back in free agency. I feel like the sentiment was that they would draft a young guy or they would sign, I guess, a free agent. It would be a younger guy, someone like maybe Tevin Coleman or something like that. They signed Frank Gore. Are you surprised? Listen, I don't think it's a bad signing. I'm not saying it's a great signing. I'm not saying it's a bad signing. I think it's a very surprising signing. Were you shocked about this or is it less of a shock to you than it probably was to me? You know, this is this is one that I got. I've got a lot of takes on this. Um, That's here because, man. <laughs> so I'm pretty passionate about this signing, and I I, I will defend this very very strongly. Um, I think the immediate knee jerk reaction was to make jokes about him being 36 years old and tying him in with Shady, who's 30, 31. Chris Ivory's 31, and so you've got this ancient running back field. The Bills had the two oldest running backs in the league under contract already in Ivory and McCoy, and then they had a 36-year-old. Yeah. All right, so like now that we've, we've all made our jokes about these, these dinosaurs in the backfield, let's talk about how this matters from the Buffalo Bills in 2019 and how good of a move I think this is. First of all, uh, Frank Gore is 36 years old. He's had over 3,000 carries. He's going to be in the top five all-time in rushing. He's going to be a Hall of Famer. He's still playing football. This man loves the game. And when you talk about an off, uh, the first season in a long time where Kyle Williams isn't part of this mix, you do a really good thing in terms of uh, replacing some of that leadership and giving the team another great example, a guy that they can look at and understand his habits and why he's been successful and emulate that. And so for a young football team, I think that really matters in and of itself. Second of all, the dude can play. You look at last year, this was his high, his it was his fifth highest per carry average of his career. Again, we're talking about a fourteen year career at this point, mm-hmm. and it was he averaged three point two nine yards additional yards after contact last year. His career average is two point five five. There's no decline. He's getting older, but there's he's still performing at a high level. He he uh, seven hundred twenty two yards in a split backfield role behind a bad Miami Dolphins of. Miami Dolphins offensive line with a bad passing game. He still managed to produce like he did. And I think that really matters. The Bills running back situation was not good last year. They didn't have production in, at running back. And I know that was partly because of injuries, partly because of a passing game that didn't have much threat to it and, and, and offensive line issues. But you have a running back that can help you. Uh, I think the next thing that really matters in this conversation is I think this helps you get the most out of Shady McCoy who had a down season. I know that he's got a chip on his shoulders to come out and prove that he can still make plays. And, and Gore and McCoy are very tight. They, they've trained together in the off seasons. And I think that those guys feeding off of each other will get you the best of whatever's left in the take for Shady McCoy. And that's really going to help the Bills have a, a good complimentary backfield. Um, I think the money thing doesn't matter. It's $2 million. 
It's it's less than a percent of the cap space total. If you're concerned about the cap space, you cut Chris Ivory and and, it, and you literally you have a one for one there. It's not even a big deal. I think it really matters to have a veteran backfield with Josh Allen in year two of his of his career, where you know if you were to bring in a bunch of rookies or whatever and blow up the position, which will probably happen next year. That's okay. Josh Allen's probably going to be ready for that next year. But in year two, when he's still acclimating himself and still growing as a player and learning how to run a team, having stability there alongside him and McCoy and Gore, that really helps him. And, 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 you know, they're going to line up where they're going to be. They're going to be on the, they're not, he's not going to have to spend time pre-snap, you know, Hey, uh, you're going to have to be on this side of me. You're my left or my right, or, you know, knowing where to help in protection and helping with line calls and knowing where to step up and help that stuff's really going to matter. It's going to help Josh Allen this year. And then it's going to set the bills up to be able to revamp the, the position group next year. And, uh, what's I mean, what else can I say? And he can pass block. He can he can pass block, and so you've done another very good thing. This is a guy with 15 years of experience pass blocking in the NFL. You've done a very good thing in terms of protecting Josh Allen. So once we get past that, he's 36 years old. There's a lot of value to this signing, and so for for all those million reasons I just said, I'm really high on the move. Do you think Chris Ivory survives here, or do you think he's going to get cut? Because I I would imagine I could be wrong. I mean, maybe they just wait to next year to address. Maybe they say, you know what, we're going to run with this three-headed monster this year. And next year, we'll draft the young running back or sign the young running back in free agency. So that is a possibility. Do you think Chris Ivory stays this year, or do you think eventually they'll replace him with a third back, somebody younger? I think you have to wait until the draft happens. And then if at some point in the draft, the Bills have 10 draft picks. So if you get to the draft and you're in the middle rounds and you feel like there's a running back that you think can help you, uh, you know, be beyond this season and be part of that, the new tandem, the new whatever you want to call it, the new stable of backs post Gore and McCoy, then I think that you, you draft that player and then you release Chris Ivory after the draft. But I think right now I'm fine with rolling with what's there and then see what options come along and draft. And then, you know, look, then you, from there, you release Chris Ivory if you need to, or, or, I mean, it's such an injury prone position, right? So like hold on to him as long as you can. We'll see. I, I think that I, I'm not confident in either direction. I think it's going to really matter who's available in the draft, and if it makes sense when they're on the clock. Well, one good thing for sure is that they, they have the luxury of not needing to release him right now, salary-wise, because right. they're in no ca- kind of cap trouble. Maybe it comes down to, if you know he's not going to be part of the plans, it, it might be the right thing to let him go so he can try to fight work somewhere else, but it doesn't always work that way. They they still might have plans for him. It's a long season. Listen, LeSean McCoy hasn't been healthy for 16 games in a while. Frank Gore is a risk at his age, although he, like you said, I mean, he's he's a rock, he's diesel, but you never know. So I don't think it's written in stone that Chris Ivory's gone. I say this right now, people are going to listen to this in the morning and he's probably cutting, going to be visiting <laughs> another team by now. Let's talk wide receiver. But before we talk about who they get, I got to hit on who they didn't get, not just from a football perspective, but from podcasting. So I have a show that comes out Friday morning, Thursday night, 1130 last week, we all know, you know, rap sheet reports that Antonio Brown's on the verge of going to the Bills. I had just, you know how you talked about how you tape your podcast at a certain time, you have it queued up and ready to go? Well, I kind of sort of do the same thing. And at about 1130, 25 minutes or so before my podcast is supposed to come out, that news breaks. I'm like, are you kidding me? Because I had just talked about the Bills and wide receivers. Some guys, I figured a couple lower tier guys, they might target Never, I, I kind of blew Antonio Brown off with the person I was talking to on that show. Next thing you know, he's coming to Buffalo. I started getting all jittery. I'm like, you got to be kidding me. 
did you already have your podcast filed? And when that happened, you were like, oh shit, am I going to have to change something? <laughs> am I going to have to do an emerge pod or anything like that? So, so what happened there was, um, Friday is the day that I don't have to do a podcast quote, oh. quote don't have to. And so they say, Hey, you know, look, if it's not going to make sense, it, it, look, I'll just kind of be honest with you is like Friday's not a great day for, for podcast performance. And so it'll bring down your per show averages if you don't have a good concept. And so I was like, all right, I'm good. I'm not going to post anything. Well, you know, next week will be big with free agency and all that. And then that came down and I wind up, I mean, I was getting ready to go to bed. I had just filed a scouting report and I was like, all right, I'm done for the day. I was went back to my timeline for one quick scan, see what's going on. I was going to going to crash. And then, then the rap sheet, the tweet came through that the bills were lasering in on a trade for Antonio Brown. And I was up for the next four hours tracking this thing. And I wind up doing an emergency podcast and we had a Friday podcast that week. So that's, that's how crazy that all affected me. Brandon Bean in his press conference on Thursday admitted that the bills pursued a trade for Antonio Brown. It kind of came close and then it fell apart. Now he didn't say why, but everybody knows the real reason why the trade ultimately fell apart was because Antonio Brown simply was not going to report to Buffalo. He was not going to play for the Bills. But regardless of that, I feel like props should go out to Brandon Bean for even going out and trying to get that big fish. I mean, that's the kind of thing that maybe fans would talk about, trying to make a trade like that. Don't think it would actually happen with the Bills, but they came very close to making it happen. So I feel like Brandon Bean deserves a lot of credit for having guts. You know what I mean? I think in one hand, Brandon Bean's probably happy that you think that because Maybe there was this perception with him, especially when he comes in and trades away Ronald Darby and, and Sammy Watkins pretty, you know, pretty much right away. Sure. And that, yeah, all those types of moves. And so maybe there's this, this stigma about him that it's like, Hey, you know, he's not going to be aggressive. He's going to be boring, all those types of things. And whoa, everyone kind of perked up like, wow, Brandon Bean was engaged in discussions to trade for Antonio Brown. You know, and I think that maybe helped change the perception around him in terms of maybe the fans eyes, which I don't think that should have ever existed. I mean, he, he, you know, he wasn't in there year one with Sean McDermott. So I think that's something we always have to consider. But then when he got tied in and he was the GM, I mean, he made all those deals. Then he made all the deals to move up for Josh Allen, moved up for Tremaine Edmonds, traded away Cordy one. I mean, there was a plenty of things that should have indicated that this isn't a guy that's going to sit on his hands and let opportunities pass him by. But now he's certainly got everyone's attention as a guy that's not, really uh, afraid to 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 show some stones about him and, and be in on big-time uh, decisions like that, being aggressive. Well, it could have definitely ended much worse for the Bills at wide receiver. So instead of talking about what they didn't get, let's talk about what they did get. You know, when the, the list came out of free agents available at wide receiver, Tyrell Williams was pretty much at the top, Golden Tate, of course, and Adam Humphreys as well. I'd like to include him on there. I think he's a really good receiver. And then there's a bunch of mid-tier guys. Well, I guess those are, they're all mid-tier guys. John Brown, Cole Beasley, maybe the Bills go out and if they're lucky, they can land one of those guys because there's a lot of teams out there that needed a receiver. So as a Bills fan, you're probably satisfied if they get one of those guys. Well, it turns out they get two of them. They get Beasley and they get Brown, two relative, I mean, the guys got paid, but they're also relatively team-friendly contracts as well. And these are two guys that have done things in the league. They come with a track record. And their opportunity here in Buffalo might be better than anything else they've had in their career. What's your take on these two guys and what they bring to the team? Yeah, I mean, speed and separation, guys. And so I think 
one thing you can probably think about a quarterback like Josh Allen and, and not necessarily the most consistent with his ball placement, there's going to be some variance there. Everyone kind of gravitates towards, oh, we need these towering receivers that can make plays in the ball and really extend the catch radius. Well, that doesn't always work, right? I mean, we saw that with Andre Holmes and Kelvin Benjamin. Think about what Cam Newton has, right? He had Devin Funches and Greg Olson and uh, Kelvin Benjamin as well, and they've sh- they've completely revitalized that that room to DJ Moore and Torrey Smith and Curtis Samuel and and Jarris Wright, right? So you can yeah. see the real the real value when you have a quarterback that's not always going to be pinpoint with his accuracy as having guys that get open and they extend throwing windows because they create space. And so ball skills are always going to be really important, but more so than a guy with long arms and size and the ability to jump is a guy that can get clean and get open. And so what Buffalo has done in terms of adding John Brown, one of the elite deep threats in the game, a guy that's going to be able to take the top off of a defense and really uh, complement what Josh arm, Josh Allen offers in terms of arm talent. That's really going to be something very helpful. And now you can put him and Foster on the field at the same time and and good luck because you're probably you're not going to be able to take away both right so uh, that's really going to cause some spacing issues and and because of those spacing issues not only do you extend the defense vertically but it opens up things underneath right so you have a guy like Cole Beasley who's a very savvy route runner that that really thrives short uh, attacking the short to intermediate areas of the field and so hey you go touchdown to checkdown with your progressions all of a sudden and your checkdowns Cole Beasley Who's going to be open? He's going to, he's going to run away from these slot corners and linebackers are going to try to cover him. Now you also have an athletic tight end and Tyler Croft, and hopefully they get even more dynamic at tight end. But I think that this whole thing, having these guys with speed, is going to really allow Buffalo to be a more complete passing offense last year. I mean, the depth of target for at, at Josh Allen was really, really kind of ridiculous in terms of how often it was down the field. It's like there's other portions of this field that you need to attack to, to make you more effective down the field. And so I think all of this is an effort to continue to make sure that the vertical passing game is part of what, what happens with the offense, but also gives you reliability in other areas of the field to be a very complete passing offense. And now the weapons are there to, to get that done. Cole Beasley during his introductory press conference on Thursday said that he also had offers on the table from New England and Dallas and ultimately chose Buffalo because of opportunity. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not foolish. I'm sure Buffalo probably offered the most money. In fact, I'd be willing to bet on that. But I do also believe him that he's being sincere and authentic where maybe Buffalo does provide him that best opportunity to go out and have really big years and have more success than he's had at any point of his career. Do you believe him? Do you really think that he's in Buffalo because of opportunity just as much as money? Yeah, he talked about opportunity, I mean, three or four different times and how how it was really about him being coming more involved with the offense. And, and so that really mattered to him. And yeah, I mean, Dallas and New England, he said that he didn't say specifically, I, I pick Buffalo over those teams. He said the decision came down to right. those teams. And so, um, you know, maybe he's thinking long term, right? I mean, he signed a four year deal and maybe he can go play with Tom Brady for one year, but he's still got Julian Edelman there, right? Like he's not going to get those looks over Julian Edelman. And so he thinks to Buffalo, hey, I've got an opportunity to to kind of solidify somewhere. He talked about being a suburbs guy that, you know, even when he was in Dallas, he lived in the suburbs with his wife and, you know, he didn't necessarily want to be in the city. And so just like from from not only the football side, but like just where he would fit well with his family and be not have an opportunity to be like that go to slot guy more so for a longer period of time in Buffalo and, and maybe not, you know, be able to look past just this year 
and and extend himself to a four-year span, he can get the most out of himself in Buffalo and really make more of a name for himself as a receiver. Now, you mentioned Tyler Croft, the tight end. They give him a three-year deal, good contract. But if you really look between the lines, there's no real commitment beyond 2019. They can get rid of him if he if they want to. If they go on and get a real stud or he just doesn't work out, it's not like they're stuck for the you know the entirety of that contract. What do you think about him as a player? I remember him from 2017 because, of course, the year the Bills went to the playoffs after beating Miami and they needed Cincinnati to beat Baltimore. That was He had two touchdowns that game. So Bills fans remember him very fondly for that one game. He didn't really do much last year. Also wasn't healthy. What do you think about that? Do you think that's a low-key good move or do you think he's pretty much a number two tight end and they're definitely going to go and try to find their guy early in the draft? Yeah, I don't I don't think you get you know super excited about Tyler Croft as your starting tight end. I think ideally he's part of a group of tight ends. He's certainly he's more than just a rosterable player, but you know, he's not that dynamic dude, a game changer at tight end. I do think he gives you some upside in terms of Baseline blocking ability, baseline receiving ability, has some juice to him for his size. So those are those are all things that that get you excited about him. But he's not overly dynamic. I mean, he did have the good season filling in for Tyler Eifert, where he had like seven touchdowns and over 400 yards receiving. Uh, but he's not been able to replicate that. He's had his own injury concerns, and so you know you look at it like you said there. It's it's kind of like a one year deal here, and the Bills can get out of this. And I think ultimately what he does is he gives you some time to continue developing Jason Kroom. Gives you an opportunity to draft a tight end. I don't, not really behind one at number nine, but you could take one in the second round, maybe a guy like Irv Smith from Alabama. And the thing about young rookie tight ends is they don't often produce right away. And so I think it's being prudent, just understanding that it's unlikely, even if you take a tight end in the first two rounds, that your immediate returns on them aren't that good. And so this was, this was solid for, for Buffalo to be able to make sure they had a veteran in, in the group. Uh, and if they do draft a tight end that they have, you know, they're not relying on a guy that's kind of somewhat unrealistic for them to come in and, and really be the starter. Last two guys. I won't spend a lot of time talking about Kevin Johnson. I think that's pretty clear cut. Levi Wallace did some good things last year. They signed Kevin Johnson, good, talented guy has had concussion issues, a couple other things. He could push Levi Wallace. We'll see how that plays out. I do want to ask you about Andre Roberts though. That's a two year deal. Came from the Jets. He killed the Bills last year in the punt in the kick return game. And the Bills kick return punt return game last year was trash. I mean, it was freaking awful. Micah Hyde was back there catching punts at one point because they couldn't trust anyone to field the ball. This guy's a pro bowler and he sounds pretty motivated to play the Jets. I mean, he had some pretty <laughs> I mean, it's some shitty word. He called them shady. I think he called them at the press conference that the Jets were shady. So this is a highly motivated guy, and he's a highly skilled guy, I think, who could give the Bills a lift at a position that they need a lift at. I'll try not to go full Frank Gore with this one, but I'm really excited about this pickup. Um, Yeah, I I mean, it's been a long time since the Bills have had anything dynamic in the return game. And and, and, in Andre Roberts, you get a guy that was an all-pro returner last year. And so we saw that firsthand in the two Buffalo games where he torched the Bills. And the thing, like you mentioned there, is like field position is such an important part of winning football games. And the Bills did not have anything reliable back there in terms of fielding punts consistently where they'll let it fall and it'll roll 15, 20 yards the other direction. And, yeah. And that's more offense that you have to be able to account for. And yeah, you made a good point there. A lot of times Micah Hyde was just going back there because you knew he could fair catch the football and you knew that you were number one, you're not going to muff it. You're going to start with the ball. You're not going to force a team to punt and then give it right back to him. But then number two, that you're not conceding those yards because you don't have a consistent 
uh, punt catcher. And so what you get from Andre Roberts is not only a guy that can change the game in terms of moving the ball forward, but he can catch the football. I got a stat for you. Uh, he's fielded 196 punts in his career. He has three muffs and wow. two of those are in one game. And so really reliable fielder of punts by comparison, Isaiah McKenzie, 47 career fielded repunts, four muffs. So you've got a guy that can catch the punt. So you, you eliminate those ridiculous bounces the other direction, but he can also take it forward. And so, I mean, he averages 10 yards per punt return for his career, 13 last year. So if you take just, there's going to be examples this year where we will never, we'll never be able to really know, but there will be times that because Andre Reed, Andre Reed, wow, Andre Roberts fields a punt and takes it 10 yards the other direction and not 10 yards the other way, that there's 20 yards of field position yeah. on, on so many different occasions. I think this is a really good step in, in, in the little things that you talk about in, in fielding a football team that, uh, that can, can, you know, we're not concerned with all of these dynamics because there's veteran players that can do these really important roles that sometimes I think are taken for granted. And Sean McDermott all year long, he talked about how he's got young football players in positions doing things. And it's, it's, we, we think it's probably just as simple as, Hey, go field the punt, right? It's, it's obviously not that simple. And so now you have guys that are proven guys. He's over 30 years old. He signed a two year deal, a guy that's an all pro last year, reliable guys that know what they're doing. And, and this is, this is going to really going to help the bills win football games. They had Ziggy Anzwa in the facility on Thursday for a visit. He left without a contract, scheduled to go to New Orleans Thursday night. Again, people are hearing this Friday morning. Who knows how that plays out? But I thought it was interesting that he even visited to begin with. Now, this is an interesting guy. 2015, he had 14 and a half sacks. Uh, then he only had two sacks the next year. He bounced back with 12 two years ago. And then he had four and seven games last year. And he missed some of the season with shoulder issues. Fifth overall pick in 2013. He's an interesting player, but at the same token, it makes you wonder, you know, the Detroit Lions gave Trey Flowers like a trillion dollars to sign with them and let this guy walk. That to me is a little bit concerning, but where I find it interesting is let's just say for the sake of discussion, he did sign with the Bills or they signed someone similar. They already got Hughes, Lawson, Murphy, Eddie Yarbrough's coming back. Do you think if they sign a guy like this, is one of these veterans guys going to get shown the door? Well, I, I think just to first of all address the the comment that you made that hey, you know why this is a top five pick? Why is he giving an opportunity to not be back? And they just give big money to Trey Flowers. I think that speaks to like just how often you see coaches, general managers want their guys, right? So Bob Quinn didn't draft that guy, and Matt Patricia didn't either. But Matt Patricia has ties to Trey Flowers from his time in New England, and so you always see these types of examples where you know, it's just not their guy. It's just not their guy. And so they, they're able to move on. And so you see Ziggy Ansa available. Obviously he had the shoulder uh, surgery as early as, you know, this, this past December. So there's some injury concerns there that you want to feel comfortable about if you sign him. But I think this kind of does speak to that. I do believe that the defensive line is a bigger need than maybe some people want to perceive because the bills have been so good on defense. And then, uh, you know, every, everybody wanted the offense to get better this offseason, which they've clearly done. And obviously 10 draft picks ahead that can help continue to build the offense. But how many guys on this Buffalo Bills defensive line do you really see consistently win 1v1 outside of Jerry Hughes? It's not really part of what happens, right? You've got a nice plug anchor in Star Latule. 
Jordan Phillips is kind of flashy for a couple plays per game. Harrison Phillips is more of a rotational guy. Shaq Lawson plays their run well, but he's not providing that complimentary edge rush from the other side consistently from Jerry Hughes. And Trent Murphy is, you know, look, I mean, he's still refining himself. Who knows if he's ever going to find himself? And so I think there are short-term concerns, very much so, that you need more in terms of being able to feel the dynamic pass rush and have guys that can consistently win 1v1. And so maybe Ziggy Ansah is that guy. But then look beyond this year. Right now, the only edge rusher under contract for the Bills for next season, not when I say next, not the one that's coming, but for 20, was it 2020, mm-hmm. is Trent Murphy. And there's no way that Trent Murphy's your lead edge rusher on a top-tier defense. And so you need guys, right? And you're not going to be able to refix that in one year. Like, you're not going to build a pass-rushing arsenal in one offseason. I mean – I think that's very unlikely. And so there's some forward thinking here, not only number one, to maybe get a guy that can help this year, but have under contract beyond this year and allow yourself to add some younger players to the mix for the long-term piece of things, whether that is with a high pick this year or next year. But I think I think that there's there's a need for playmakers on the defensive line outside of Jerry Hughes. One quick NFL question, and then I want to wind down with a little bit of draft talk. Around the league, Crazy moves, obviously. I'm not going to... OBJ, that was probably the biggest move. And Antonio Brown, that's not a shock that he got traded. But did he went to the Raiders, maybe. What surprised you about what's happened this week, maybe more than anything else? Huh, that's interesting. Uh, surprised me more than anything. Um, uh, I got my answer. And this is uh, this is honestly what I believe. The thing that I am most surprised with and disappointed with is the Houston Texans doing nothing. Oh, to yeah. improve this offensive line in front of Deshaun Watson. This dude came back from an ACL tear, and he was greeted by getting sacked 62 times last year. The dude's running for his life, and they're staring at a really good offensive line free agent group, and they did nothing. And it's not because they don't have cap space. Right now, they have $47 million in cap space, the fourth most in the entire NFL. Yeah, And they're sitting on their hands counting on Santrell Henderson and Julian Davenport as their tackles. Uh, <laughs> Zach Fulton is a replacement level guard. They've got uh, Kelametti is their other guy. They're upgradable every single spot, and they didn't do a thing. So uh, to me, that's just poor. That's really poor to not – It's not. There, there's, they have money, and there's plenty of options available. You've seen it across the league. You saw what the Bills did. You've seen Carolina make big investments in their offensive line. Juwan James, Trent, Trent Brown, and, and, and they're gonna, the Texans are going to sit on their hands. I think that was the most surprising and most disappointing thing. I I've never seen. thought of that until you said that. You're 100% right. They really done nothing. And they seem like a team who's like right there. A couple good players <laughs> away. Definitely the offensive line. I thought maybe they might have been surprisingly in play for Bell. I never heard one rumor about that or Tevin Coleman. But yeah, the offensive line is garbage and they've done nothing. I never thought of that he just said that. You're 100% right. Before we get out of here, let's talk Bill's draft just for a minute here, okay? We talked a little bit about the offensive line. I still think that that's a strong possibility with the ninth pick between Taylor, Williams, maybe in Hilliard. I don't think that they did enough on the line that you could say, all right, well, they're not taking an offensive tackle with the ninth pick. I don't think that whatsoever because some of these guys, like you said, are interchangeable. Do you have that? I do think that Brown and Beasley probably end them taking DK Metcalf if he was there at nine. I could be wrong about that, though. Do you feel like offensive tackle is still a very good possibility? And you hit on this before or a couple minutes ago. Defensive tackle is a position... They've done nothing with free agency. They do have to still replace Kyle Williams. They brought back Jordan Phillips. They got to replace that position. 
And you might have a guy like Ed Oliver at nine or maybe even Christian Wilkins. Do you think one of those two guys could very easily be the pick at nine? Yeah, um, I think very much it's going to be defensive line right now. Um, And trying to be predictive here and get inside the head of Brandon Bean if I can, I think that Christian Wilkins is going to be a guy that they're going to love. I mean, you talk about a culture guy, a process guy. He's everything. Very accomplished person. Super high energy. uh, Just embodies everything that they're looking for in a Buffalo Bill, quote unquote. What makes me a little bit nervous is I know that Brandon Bean loves prototypes, especially on the line and especially arm length. And so the thing with Christian Wilkins is he's got 32 and a half inch arms. And I don't I don't know if an inch of arm length is going to make him not draft him. But I'm just saying if there's anything that gives me some caution there, although I think he's a dream in terms of a lot of other things at Oliver. He's small. I mean, he's six, six, one and seven, eights, 287 sub 32 inch arms. And so I think Ed Oliver would be perfect because he's so dynamic. He can really be that wrecking ball defensive lineman, a guy that can get into the backfield and make plays. But I don't know if they're going to like him in terms of prototypes. And so dating, going back to what we talked about, like all the way back to that center discussion about, you know, play, people looking at their past positions and the things that were true there that that got them them jobs and then wanting to replicate that. You think about Kalan Short, a really important piece of that Panthers defense who the Bills don't have anything like that. Even even look, I'm going to say something that's hard here, but even with Kyle Williams, Kyle Williams on the field hasn't been Kyle Williams on the field, if you will, for the last couple of seasons. His value to the team was a lot bigger than him being a dynamic football player. And so I know that they're going to want to get that dynamic three technique and they're going to want to do it through the draft. Because if you look at the deal that they have for Starlo Tule, which is not restrictive at all, I know that he gets paid a lot of money and he pretty much just eats space against the run. But the reality is the, the teams do look at the amount of money they spend per position. And, you know, going after a guy like Malik Jackson or Sheldon Richardson or Nanami Kong Su would be surprising just given the amount of money they already have invested in one player at that position. So it makes sense for them to go get a young player at that spot. So who fits that spot? Well, I think you you said two names that make a lot of sense, Wilkins and Oliver. Are they willing to overlook their desire to have prototypes? So that's interesting. And then I think you flip it over to the edge where – you know, I, I kind of made the case already for that being a need. And you think about guys like Montez Sweat, who is a prototype in every sense of the word. He's a senior. You know, they love to draft seniors. He, you know, and so that's a guy that I can see them really gravitating towards. Maybe Brian Burns, but again, he's lean. I don't know if that's a, a target for them. So right now I'm kind of thinking predictively, not necessarily what I would do. I think it's Christian Wilkins or Montez Sweat feel like the most logical guys right now. Hmm. All right. Last question here. My and most fans, our, our draft expertise starts and ends with those high to mid first round talents. Can you give us a handful of guys, maybe in the trenches, who might go like rounds two or three or maybe even four? A couple guys, either on the offensive or defensive line, that from your scouting that you like that maybe listeners aren't too aware of at this point. Yeah, there's some there's some defensive tackles that I think are day two guys that I I get pretty excited about. Uh, I really like. Um, uh, Kalen Saunders from Western Illinois. He's a, a FCS guy. This dude's fun, man. He destroys dudes. He's super athletic, super powerful. He's super raw in terms of his vision and understanding, you know, being able to diagnose run schemes. But I think from just being a wrecking ball type player on the interior, he gets me pretty excited. A uh, Rennell Wren from Arizona State. I mean, you talk about traits on top of traits. He gives you everything in terms of size, length, athleticism. Uh, just needs to get the technical side down. I think he'd be, he can be a playmaker. He's from uh, Arizona State. Um, I really like Justin Hollins from Oregon. He's, if you're talking about maybe a mid round, 
outside edge guy, edge rusher, a guy that's he played a little bit off ball for for Oregon, but also got a chance to rush the passer. And I, I really get excited about his pass rushing reps. So just to kind of give you some some deeper names there, not even necessarily at number 40, but middle round guys that you know, if the Bills were to wait on and want to add pieces to the edge rusher or defensive tackle, those are three names that pop for me. All right, man. Good stuff. Follow Joe on Twitter at the Joe Marino. Be sure to check out his content at the draftnetwork.com. And of course, his Locked On Bills podcast. I'm going to put links to the show notes, all that stuff. Thanks, Joe. This was a lot of fun, man. Dude, we went for a solid hour. I'm not even joking. <laughs> I could listen to hear, I could hear you talk Buffalo Bills and NFL stuff for two hours and not get bored. Really good. Well, thank you. I, the good news is people can do that if they want to every day. I got an hour of podcasting. So uh, it's been fun, Patrick. I, I really enjoyed doing this, and your questions were great, and uh, certainly privileged to be part of this. <laughs> Real quick here, I need to set up this next segment. A couple weeks ago on this podcast, I had on as a guest, Sean Chandler. He is a YouTube content creator, a very good one at that. Sean reviews movies, TV shows. He lists rankings of different TV series, movie franchises. He has Q&As, all kinds of stuff, things like that. Very interesting channel. If you like movies or if you like TV shows, definitely a channel worth checking out. Anyway, I had him on the show, and afterwards, we had a nice discussion and decided to do a little bit of a collaboration. So what I'm going to do, not every week, but from time to time, I'm going to play the audio version. Obviously, this is a podcast, so I can't do a video version, but I'm going to play the audio version of some of his movie reviews. Today, I have a non-spoiler version of Captain Marvel, which just came out last week. Again, so if you haven't seen the movie yet, you don't have to worry about having anything spoiled for you with this review. If you have seen it or if you want to know spoilers, he does have on his channel a much longer review featuring full spoilers. So I'm going to play some of his content from time to time. And what I'd like from you is to go to his channel, which is the Sean Chandler Talks About YouTube page. I'm going to put um, a link in the show notes as well. Go check that out. Hit that subscribe button, that little bell next to it so you get notifications whenever he has a new video out. This is a guy, Sean, who started doing this part-time just as a hobby. He put out a video every couple weeks or a few every couple months, and he didn't do anything for a long period of time. He started like that, built his stuff from the ground up. Now he does it full-time. He's got new content almost daily, and he's up to over 90 thousand subscribers, 90,000. A great job he's doing over there. And for good reason that there's that many subscribers. He has really interesting content. He's very, very good, as you'll hear here in this clip, very good at breaking down movies and TV shows. So go check out his YouTube channel. Sean Chandler talks about subscribe, hit that notification button. And in the meantime, here is his non-spoiler movie review for Captain Marvel. After an eight-month absence from the big screen, Marvel finally returns with their first female-led film, Captain Marvel. So let's talk about it. 
Captain Marvel is the 21st film in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. It's a prequel set during the 90s telling the story of a Kree warrior hero trying to stop the shape-shifting scroll. But when she crash lands on Earth, she realizes that her backstory is way more complicated than she realized. As we go into this, this is a spoiler-free review. I'm only going to discuss specific plot points that are shown in the trailers. Let's get started talking about the good. And probably the best thing about this film was Nick Fury. Samuel L. Jackson is just great in this role. And in this film, you see pre-cynical Nick Fury. We get all the stuff that we love about him, but we see a different side to the character and we see him turn into the Nick Fury that we know in later films. And because his character had to be de-aged for the film, I was a little bit skeptical that maybe he was going to be a smaller part of the film. No, he's a major character in this film and it is great. And apparently he really likes cats. Who knew? Speaking of cats, let's talk about Goose the Cat. This was another great little character inside of the film. <laughs> Just hits all the right notes at all the right moments in all the right ways. Another standout in the film is Ben Mendelsohn as our scroll villain. At the beginning of the film, I thought it was going to be a little bit more of Ben Mendelsohn doing kind of his typical schmarmy villain routine. But as the film goes along, they keep adding layers upon layers for the character and we get something new from him. Another thing I enjoyed is that it's once again a new type of Marvel film. It certainly feels like it has that MCU shine on the whole thing, but it has a different genre to it. It actually felt a lot to me like the X-Files during the middle act of the film. There's even a part where they go to a secret base and just the imagery of all of it reminded me of the X-Files. And while this is an origin story, it does not follow the MCU origin template at all. It is a new story structure for the MCU. Speaking of the story, there's a lot of twists and turns along the way in this film that I didn't see coming. The trailers do a pretty good job of not really giving away what the story is for this film and where it's going. So along the way, you really do have some surprises. As this is a Marvel film, you get two post-credit scenes. One's just kind of a little bit fun and one is the meat that is a really nice nugget right now. So I thoroughly enjoyed the first end credit scene in this film. And as this is a Marvel film, it just has a great sense of fun. It's a very watchable film and in the scheme of the Marvel films, while it has some heavier elements to it, it's a more lighthearted entry into the Marvel Cinematic Universe. With that said, let's move on to the mixed aspects of this film. And the first thing that comes to mind is the 90s setting. Now, some of this is a lot of fun to see Blockbuster, Radio Shack, Pocket Pagers, Pinball Machines. Just the aesthetic is nice for me as someone that was growing up during the 90s. It's also great to see a young Coulson in the film. He's more of a cameo kind of sprinkled throughout the film. But as it is a prequel, it tries to answer some questions and give us hints of where certain things came from. Some of it's kind of interesting and some of it is cringe-inducing bad. Also, the soundtrack to the film at times is a lot of fun as they started playing 90s pop songs, but other times it's distracting. It's like they were trying too hard to be clever and they killed the dramatic tension of certain scenes because of their song choices. The film also has the return of some Kree characters from Guardians of the Galaxy where it's nice to see them but they don't really add much to the film. They could have been replaced by anyone else. They only included them to be like, hey, remember them from Guardians of the Galaxy? Another big mixed aspect of this film was Brie 
Larson and Captain Marvel. Going into the film, there's a lot of controversy surrounding her acting because some of the trailers portrayed her as very stiff. In the film, she's a lot more dynamic, vibrant, and especially sassy in the film. So I don't think the trailers represented her particularly well, but the character and the acting always felt kind of off to me and almost like they were at an arm's length away emotionally. I never felt like we really understood what made her tick. What was she thinking? What was motivating her? And a lot of the film were told things about her, but they don't really show us those things about her. Even her powers were pretty confusing. It was very unclear what her powers are and how powerful she is, even at the end of the film. And one final mixed thing on this film was the special and visual effects. The de-aging in this film is fantastic. There was not one time where any of it looked off to me. It just looked like they pulled it off de-aging Samuel L. Jackson and Coulson by 25 years. However, some of the other special effects where people are flying in space and stuff like that definitely looked cartoony at times and didn't I didn't fully buy it. With that said, let's move on to the negative. The big problem here is the film never feels like it has a single cohesive vision. The space stuff feels like it's directed by one person. The Nick Fury investigation feels like it's directed by another. And then the whole thing feels like Kevin Feige put his shot on it. Contrast that with Infinity War, which also hops from space to Earth and franchise to franchise, but the whole film feels like it was put together by one creative team. The whole film has one storytelling voice and tone. This film, it feels like scene to scene, someone different was directing. And I suspect that's because this film had a pretty cluttered creative team. There's five people credited with the story, three credited screenwriters, two credited directors, and then of course, Kevin Feige doing his magic on the whole thing. Another problem with the film is the pacing and the storytelling. It does get better as it goes along, but the first act to this film is very clunky, exposition heavy, and has incredibly awkward dialogue that just exists to set up the characters and tell us everything we need to know about the universe and the rules. I hinted at this before, but this movie has a lot of weird performances that just feel off. Like the people acting in scenes together are in totally different movies. Annette Bening in particular, who has given great performances, does not work inside this film at all. The movie also feels like it has the exact wrong amount of flashbacks, or at least the way it uses them is the exact wrong way. It cuts back to these flashbacks where it montages through several different glimpses of her childhood and her upbringing, but it doesn't just these quick glimpses, and it felt like either cut that out entirely or pick specific scenes in the flashbacks to zoom in on, but the way it used them, it just felt very unsatisfying and like it didn't show us what it thought it was showing us. And finally, as this is a prequel, one of the answers the movie gives as to how something happened is totally unforgivable. It would have been much better to not answer the question than to offer this as the explanation. It's a fun movie with some great Nick Fury moments, but wildly uneven storytelling, acting, and tone hold it back from being upper tier Marvel. It's a B minus overall, 7.5 on entertainment. If you're a Marvel fan, of course you gotta see it in the theater. Everyone else, you can wait for Redbox. All right, that is a wrap for this episode. Big thank you again, Joe Marino, NFL Draft Network, Locked on Bills podcast. Outstanding job breaking down all these Buffalo Bills free agent signings, what it means for the team. Hopefully you fans out there listening got a lot out of it and have a much better understanding 
of where these guys should fit in with the organization. Time to start looking forward to the draft. He gave us some really good draft insight. Can't wait for that. An exciting Buffalo Bills offseason continues. So thanks again, Joe. Thanks as well to Sean Chandler for his movie review on Captain Marvel. Go to his YouTube channel, Sean Chandler Talks About. Hit that subscribe button. Hit the bell right next to it so you get notifications when he has a new video out. Can't go wrong. If you like movies, you like TV, it's a no-brainer. Go subscribe to his channel. Coming up on the show next Tuesday, I have a former Buffalo Bill. You know what? I'm not going to say who it is. Going to keep you in suspense a little bit. Wasn't one of the more heralded players of his era, but he was a popular player, a productive guy. You don't hear from him much. So hopefully that comes through for us. I'll have that for you next Tuesday. You're going to have to tune in next week to find out who exactly I'm talking about. And guys, if you haven't done so already, I invite you to subscribe to this podcast. It's quick. It's easy. It's completely free. When you subscribe, new episodes automatically get sent directly to your phone or to your computer within just minutes of the release. That is the benefit of subscribing. Simply put, when you subscribe, you get the episode before anyone else does. I have shows pretty much every Tuesday and Friday. Don't forget to rate and review. Again, that always helps us tremendously. You can find this on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Stitcher, Spotify, pretty much anywhere future award-winning podcasts are found. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter at Pamoran Tweets. You can also like us on Facebook, Analytics Podcast Facebook page. Thanks again for listening. See you next Tuesday. I'll catch you on the flippity flip. Bye.